0: I would encourage, with me, encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open with me uh, to the book of John. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, just listen in. And uh, maybe if you do have a Bible you're not very familiar with it, turn with me to the Gospel of John, which is in the New Testament, which means that it's in the latter half of your Bible. If you open it right to the center, you're in the book of Psalms. That means you need to go a little bit further to the back. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, not 1st or 2nd, 3rd John. shouldn't have a number in front of it, but just plain old John. And today we are embarking on our new series entitled, Empty, How the Resurrection Changes Everything. And I'm amazed. There are certain days that we experience in our lives where we're changed. I mean, when we we grow up, when we, we hit 16, that changes everything, doesn't it? Get your license. You remember that day when you got your license or when you got your first car? That changed everything. Or when you graduated high school? That changed everything. Or perhaps when you got your first job, you're independent, you got a little bit of money coming in. That might have been the day that really really changed everything. I mean, there are days that we experience that change everything, not just personally, but, but corporately. Days that we experience as a nation that change who we are and how we think and what we feel, what we do. I think of the day that lived in infamy for those that are from an older generation, December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. That day changed the life of everyone in the United States. Suddenly, we were going into a war where men and women were be giving their lives on behalf of their country, where people would be sacrificing reality as we knew it changed. Or we think of great tragedies such as November 22, 1963, the day when John F. Kennedy was shot. For those of you who were around those, that, that period of time, you remember where you were, don't you? If you were in school, you remember who your teacher was, who you were sitting by, you remember everything very vividly. That day changed us. And for those that are a bit younger generation, you remember September eleventh, two 2001. That day changed us all as a nation. So these are days that that change us, but those are the days that change us as a nation, and then we have these days that change us personally, and and it, it could be high school graduation, it could be getting our first job, it could be when you got married. I remember that day changed me, I was, my wife hates me telling this story, but I was freaked out the day that I got married. I, I didn't enter into marriage flippantly. I was on the opposite side of that. I knew how rampant divorce was. I'd seen different people that were, the, that were collateral damage and sometimes in, the, in life that they went into marriage very naively and said, we're going to live on love. And that didn't last very long <laughs> when all the, the bills started piling up and stress piled up and, and all of those things happened. and So I knew getting married, I, I, I understood and and take this the right way, that this woman had the potential of ruining my life. I thought that. And I was excited about the day, but I was also very, you know, just very nervous. And I remember standing up in front of the church, and I was sitting up there with the pastor when I saw my beautiful bride. She just looked gorgeous. But superimposed over her head was Squints from the movie Sandlot. You remember that movie? Squints from the movie Sandlot, and all he says is, is in slow motion, forever, forever. And I kept thinking, whoa, (laughs) forever. I kept seeing that in my mind. I'm going, this is forever. And you have that little angel, the little devil going, get out now, (laughs) run. And then the other side says, no, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. And I punched that one in the face and I said, I do. (laughs) But I remember even as I was up there with the pastor and I was looking at my bride and And I I hear the pastor say, I now pronounce you man and wife. There was a change that happened that day. A major transformation. There was no longer just Travis Fleming. I wasn't just by myself anymore. The two shall become one flesh. We were now one. Everything about it changed. I mean, for those in marriage, you know what I'm talking about. Everything changes. Your house changes. Stuff starts going up on the walls that you had no idea even existed. The stuff that you love somehow is in the alley in the dumpster. I don't understand how that all occurs. But these are all things that happen when you get married. It changes everything. And then I remember having kids. I mean, I wanted children. I was excited about kids. But kids change everything. Places that you would never put your nose as just a a sane adult happens once you have children. Suddenly you grab the child and put their nose right up to their butt. Whoa! You set him down. It, it, things changed. I remember looking at that little bull—a ball of mush. I mean, she looked like a beat-up, wrinkled raisin. Just that I, I, she was beautiful. Don't get me wrong. I remember all these old ladies at church said, "Your child's just going to be beautiful." And they asked me. They said, "Was she beautiful?" And I was like, "Mm-mm." Yeah. Not till everything fell out. You know, it was all good then. But she, and what, but she was beautiful. All her wrinkly little self, and she was purple, and and. Uh, you know, she was purple and slimy, kind of like Slimer from the Ghostbusters, but purple. And they cleaned her off, and I remember holding her, and everything, everything had changed that day. I mean, if you're a parent, you know, you know what it's like. Suddenly, your order of priorities change. Your interests change. What you watch changes. Where you go changes. And you know what? It's, it's a great change. It's a blessed change. It's a wondrous change. I mean you you hold that child. You do anything for that child. And you love it cuz that day changes everything. Do you know all of all of the days that we experience in life? Whether it's getting your license, high school graduation, getting married, having kids. Or even days like September 11th. Those days all pale in comparison to this day. A resurrection day. That day changed the course of history. I mean, not just for you and me. Not just for those who claim to be Christian. No, it changed for everybody. It was a game changer. I mean, everything changed that day when that tomb was empty. Because no one in history had ever risen from the dead. I mean, no one had just done it of their own volition. No one had been three days in a tomb and then suddenly comes out and says, I'm the Lord of life. It just it doesn't happen. But it did with Him. It changed everything. Today we're going to be looking, and in the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at how certain individuals were changed and transformed because of that grave being empty. Today we're just going to get a brief overview of one person. We're going to skip through the rest of the passage, kind of just giving a a brief highlight, and overview, over other people that were changed and how they were changed and how they were delivered from sin. You know, each one of us has a sin problem. Everybody in this room does. I do. You do. Everyone does. We're all lost in sin. The scripture says that. I mean, for those that have children, I guarantee that you believe in sin. When they're little infants and they get caught doing something and they, and they say, did you do it? No. I saw you do it. Did you do it? No. See, they they know that it's. they don't want to be caught. They're caught. They're, they do an act and they, they don't want to take responsibility for it. They're they're sinners. We're all sinners. Everyone in this room is. No one in this room is w- better than any other person. We are all lost in sin. On the Titanic, all we're going down. Every one of us. Doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter what degrees you have, doesn't matter how well you dress, doesn't matter where you've been, what you've smoked, what you've shot, where you've been, who you've been with. We're all sinners. But every one of us also is in need of a Savior. That's the thing we all must remember. So hopefully you're with me in the book of John, chapter 20. It's our tradition here at Village Bible Church to stand for the reading of God's Word, so I would encourage you all to please stand with me. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, reading verses 1 through 11. 1 through 10, excuse me. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the tomb had been taken away. The stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went to the, into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing in our time together today. We pray that your word might penetrate from this pulpit as a laser. Lord, may it just penetrate all of the, the hardened hearts of unbelief, the layers that have built up over the years. May we truly hear your word because we know, according to your word, that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Lord, I pray that your words might be spoken, might be elevated. Lord, I pray that anything of myself that gets in the way, Lord, please forgive me but I pray that You might draw us all into Yourself, that we might truly behold and believe who You are. And for those who do have already trusted You, I pray that You might encourage each one of us and those who have not yet trusted You that are under Your wrath and living in rebellion might see and know who You are and repent of their sins and embrace You. So glorify Yourself today. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. So a day that changed everything. We all know that there... We have a sin problem, as I mentioned before. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans 6.23 Every one of us is a sinner. The Bible says that we're actually slaves to sin. Everybody who sins is a slave to sin. So we're all slaves, whether we like it or not. We have to, we can't can't stop sinning. I mean, the person who has really tried to stop sinning knows how powerful temptation is. For those that always give in to temptation, you don't know how strong it is. For those that really try to resist know how difficult it is to follow God. But you know, every one of us, that we can't follow God the way that we're supposed to. See, it's, it's like this. Imagine living in an apartment that's owned by Satan, the devil. That's God's adversary. He's a very real spirit being. Not someone to be trifled with. Not someone that you can control. But he is God's enemy. And he owns the building you're living in. You didn't have a choice. You just lived there. You were born into that place. You inherited it. And you're, you're living there. And every time sin shows up, he's your landlord. He knocks on the door. You have to answer the door. You can't help it. Every time, no matter how bad it is. But see, what happened with Christ is after he rose from the dead, he purchased that building as his own. And see, what he did is he broke that lease with Satan. See, God now owns that building. You don't have to answer the door to sin any longer. See, before, you had to open the door. Now, Satan comes knocking. See, he's going to try to extract that rent from you. But you say, hey, Satan, I don't have to answer the door anymore. Go away! <laughs> you can just do that. But see, some of us still want to open that door and invite him in for a little while. And even if you invite the door, the Scripture is very clear that no temptation is seized except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He will provide, provide a way out. So you can slam the door in sin's face. You don't have to do that any longer. See, every one of us has this disease called sin. And we need deliverance from this disease. And Christ is the only one that can deliver us. We all have a sin problem. Now, we learned on Friday or a Good Friday service that the reason we have a problem with sin is because of that first tree in the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, Adam and Eve, our first parents, ate of that tree because they wanted to be like God. So they were cursed and died. But Jesus, by becoming man, He became a curse for us by hanging on another tree. He saved us by giving His life for us on that tree. It's the great reversal. One tree appeared to promise life, but brought death. But the other tree promised death, but brought life. So we all have a sin problem, but that's not just it either. Every one of us is also under the wrath of God. You see, God is holy. Sometimes we like to think of God just as a little bit better than us. God's our, our buddy. God's not, you know, he's not necessarily involved in the affairs of human life. I would beg to differ. The world might be continuing on, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't take notice. God knows all things. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. And because God is holy, when we sin, we are therefore under the wrath of God. He is holy, righteous wrath. It's something that we don't even begin to, to grasp today in our very tolerant, laissez-faire society, just whatever. We're indifferent. We don't, it's not a big deal to us anymore. We, you know, whatever is good for you, as long as you believe it and you're sincere, whatever is good for you, well, that's a big, giant lie. Because you can believe something, believe something sincerely, and, and you might believe it with all your heart, but that doesn't change the fact on whether it's a lie. Right. Amen. Someone might say, hey, the bridge is out. And you could say, I don't believe that, and keep on driving, but you're going to find out when you go down that hill that they were telling the truth. So we all have a sin problem. We're all under God's wrath. But see, God provided a sacrifice, a substitute for us. That the wrath of God was poured out on Christ that faithful night on Good Friday. His followers didn't yet understand the necessity that he had to suffer and be sacrificed. See, he had told them several times and prophesied and foretold about his death that he was going to suffer and die. Indeed, that's why he came, to suffer on and die on the behalf of sinners like us. And for the past several weeks, we've been observing what's called the Lenten Wreath. And we have it up here before you today. And It was knowing we, every Sunday a preceding Easter, we have been extinguishing a different candle. And then on Good Friday, we extinguished the last candle. But today, as you'll notice, all the candles are lit because he's alive. See, he took the wrath of God upon himself for you. That's how bad sin was. See, we have a tendency to look at our sin and minimize it. It's just a character defect. It's just a problem. It's not that big of a deal. But in the sight of God, it's a huge deal. It's like saying you have a fire in your house. That fire is not that bad. That fire is not that bad. But see, that fire is gonna burn down the house. You can even walk around the house. The fire is going on around you on the drapes and the clothes, and you can go on your merry way and say it's not that bad. It's not that bad. There's no fire. But that fire is gonna burn you and it's gonna kill you. Every one of the sea have a have a, a sin problem. Yet his disciples didn't understand it. Apparently. The religious leaders of the day did. Those who were the, the self-righteous. See, God not only came to save the self-righteous, but He also came to show a mirror in behalf of those who, who were self-righteous. So He came to save sinners, but the self-righteous didn't need saving. And in Jesus' day, many of them had become religious teachers. They'd become the kind of the who's who of the religious elite of the day. But even they, even though they were partially behind His death, I thought, actually, they were entirely behind bringing it about, Jesus, I mean, they thought they could even stop Jesus' body being stolen. See, that's what they thought was going on. See, they remembered that they even says the imposter in Matthew chapter 27, the religious leaders call him an imposter. They go to Pontius Pilate and they said, the imposter had said that after three days he would rise, so station some guards there, because if not, the, the next thing that happens, it'll be worse than the first thing that happened. So Pilate gave him the guards. See, the problem was, is they thought they were keeping people from getting into Jesus' tomb. The reality was, is they needed to be stopping him from getting out. That was the reality. See, God took our sin upon Himself and His Son to die for us. See, the, But there are some obstacles for us to understand. Before we can truly grasp and believe that, there are some obstacles that we need to overcome first. And that's my first point, if you're following along in your notes. Our deliverance from sin, first of all, requires finding success in overcoming great obstacles. There are some obstacles that need to be overcome for us to truly comprehend and believe who Jesus is and what He did on the cross that day and when He rose from the grave. The first obstacle that needs to become, obviously, that we have to overcome, first of all, is Jesus' suffering. Jesus' suffering. That's the first obstacle that needs to be overcome. I mean, Jesus suffered. The book of Isaiah says that he suffered beyond recognition. He, we couldn't even recognize him any longer. You think that he was, he was up all night on Thursday night. He is betrayed by his closest confidant. After all of his other disciples said that they weren't going to leave him, they leave him and fled. Even his closest, one of his closest confidants, which was Peter, he says, you know what, I'm not going to leave you. It's what he says earlier in the evening. He says, even if everybody leaves, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to die with you. But even Peter takes off. And then Jesus is is unjustly arrested or legally. He is beaten. There are staffs that are taken in his face and hit him in the face. They they take uh, the crown of thorns and jam it on his head. I mean, they had just beat him and punched him and ripped out his beard. I don't know if you've ever had a kid pull on your hair. Men, if you've ever had facial hair and someone pull on it, imagine ripping it from the flesh. That's painful. That's extremely painful. And then he was scourged, flogged. A cruel thing happened in flogging. It's still done, actually, in some countries. I was just reading the other day of a 14 year old girl who was accused of adultery, and she was given 100 lashes and just died after 70. It was terrible. But Jesus was flogged with a very cruel device called a flagellum. Not just a whip, but a flagellum. This flagellum was a leather like whip device that had at the end of it pieces of metal, bone, and glass that were designed to tear the flesh away from the body, exposing the bones and sometimes the organs. It was not unheard of for individuals to die even during the flogging. And his, he would have been tied to a post and his back would have been taut so the skin would have maximum tear. He went through that and then the blood loss would have been immense. He was already exhausted, blood loss, being beaten in the face, have a crown of thorns jammed on you. You've already been up all night long. People have been yelling at you, accusing you of various things, and then they they make him carry the cross, which he couldn't do. He tried, he fell, and they had to enlist Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross for him as they walked up here hill to a, the place called place of the skull, called Golgotha, we call Calvary. There he would have been laid down on the cross where his arms would have been pulled tightly across and the nail probably went into his wrist. It was considered part of the hand, piercing the ulna nerve, causing great pain throughout the entire body. So one wrist would have been nailed into the cross, the other wrist would have been nailed into, then his feet would have probably been crossed over and they put the the nail right into his feet. Then they would have lifted him up on the cross and the hole was already dug and he would set the body down in, resting in it. It would cause further terror within the body and great pain. Matter of fact, they even had to invent a word to describe the pain that was going on in the cross. The word excruciating means out of the cross. So the pain that he would have suffered would have been absolutely horrendous. Now, death was meant to be slow. Humiliation was meant to be maximum. So he would have been stripped completely naked. Nothing on his body. They wanted to humiliate Him in the, the greatest way possible. And then they put a sign on Him in mocking and jest. Written in three different languages, King of the Jews. And see, death would have come slowly because it would be through asphyxiation. What would happen is the individual would have a hard time breathing in such a taut position. So in order to get one's breath, one would have to either raise up on the nails in order to get breath and then come back down, it would be continually over and over, and then the individual would be exhausted when their legs would give out, and then they would, would simply die of lack of oxygen. So Which is why when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he died, I mean, he was already had a significant amount of blood loss, that they were getting ready to take the bodies down. Remember he was crucified between two thieves. He was died at criminal's death. It was like being at the firing squad or in the electric chair or the needle or something like that. I mean, it was capital punishment to the extreme and humiliation at the same time. So he, uh, right before they wanted to take the bodies down, because it was the Sabbath day, it was coming preparation day, they needed to get the, the, the bodies off of the crosses. So what they did is, is they went and took a big hammer-like structure and then would break the legs in order so the person could not raise up any longer to catch their breath. But well, when they came to Jesus, they noticed that he was already dead. But just to make sure, they took a spear and they pierced his side. When he had gone into the pericardium, and you see the blood and water flow, which was a sure sign that he was, in fact, dead. So he would have been beaten beyond recognition. Now, for us to believe, I mean, there are theories out there in different faiths. that Jesus swooned on the cross. He swooned. That he simply passed out. They took him off the cross I mean, that's pretty ludicrous to think, after even a spear going through a pericardium and all the torture that he went through, that he just swooned. But let's just take it and run with it. So he supposedly swoons. He gets put into the tomb, wrapped in probably about 100 pounds of linen cloth, put into a tomb where a big, large rock would have gone across it. And then supposedly, according to some, that the cold stones revived him. Now, let's think about that for a second. I don't mean to be trivial, but to just think very realistically. If he was beaten beyond recognition that he would raise after three days in the tomb without food or water and all the blood loss that he had to stand up, have enough strength to get all of those linen cloths off his body, and then to roll the stone away, look at his disciples, and then say, I'm the Lord of life. I don't think that they would have been falling down saying, my Lord and my God, if he was just in that decrepit condition. He was transformed. But the suffering of Jesus, that's the first obstacle that we need to overcome. The second one would have been sorrow. Now this is where Mary Magdalene comes in. I mean, Mary is the one that we were just reading about, and if we were to go on and read further in John chapter 20, we would read that she was, in verse 11, that she stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid, them. laid Him. Her suffering would have been immense. I mean, there's no way to either describe what the pain she was going through. We don't have the backstory on Mary's life. But the Scripture says that Mary was one that Jesus had delivered her from being demonically possessed. She had seven demons in her, and Jesus had freed her from that bondage, given her a purpose, given her hope, given her life. She had been serving Jesus and traveling with the disciples and, and catering to their needs and, and she loved him. He was her hope. And I can't imagine what she was thinking as she was walking to the tomb that morning. The thoughts that it might have been going through her mind. They said it was some of the this gospel say that it was still dark. Others say it was just the, the light of day. It was early morning. And she had other ladies with her. John only records the one. John only records those what he's trying to prove his point here. But the other gospel writers record other ladies with her. And they're walking along softly, and they're going to anoint Jesus' body. It was an, a totally unwelcome task. They were still trying to wrap their minds around what had just happened to Jesus. Because, see, Jesus was the deliverer. See, it was on Palm Sunday where everybody was outside waving their palm branches like we would at a, at a, at a parade, with the, a Fourth of July parade, waving our American flags. They were waving the palm branches, saying, "'Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.'" And then to have it go south so fast. To go from, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify him, crucify him. It had to have been just such a mind job, unbelievable, to wrap their brain around what had just happened. And she's just grieved and grieving. And she gets to the tomb and sees that the body's not there, and she's freaked out. She takes off to tell the disciples what had happened. And she encounters Peter, uh, Peter and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as we read about the author of this text. So she had this sorrow. She just couldn't understand. I mean, even though the angels had said, he's not here, he's risen, it didn't register with her. She just says, the body's gone. It didn't register. She didn't have any way of even putting it, how to fathom someone rising from the dead. It just didn't happen. So she's run off saying, somebody took took Jesus' body. And even as the angels are talking to her, she says, she turns around and, and she sees Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener. I can understand why. I mean, she wasn't expecting him to be alive, for one. And number two, the last time she had seen him, he was being carried off of a cross, beaten beyond recognition. So she wasn't expecting to see him fully restored. And we're going to come back to that in a second. But we're going to see, though, that her sorrow was something that had to be overcome. Because, you know, it's hard. You can't see anything properly while your eyes are blurred with tears. C.S. Lewis said. She didn't think she had any tears left to cry. Each time the picture of him on the cross flashed across her mind, the tears flowed all over again. I'm imagining as she's walking to the tomb still, sorrow and grief filled her heart, an unwelcome reminder that life is not as it should be. She was grateful not to be alone with those other ladies around her. But to see that stone had rolled away, the only thought she could envision, the question that came to her mind was, did somebody steal his body? they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. She couldn't see through her sorrow. Her sorrow and pain clouded everything. Now, let's not just look at her. There's another obstacle. We can see this within the disciples. See, remember I told you the disciples before had pledged their loyalty to Jesus. Jesus said, you will all deny me at the Last Supper. And they they said, no, we'll not deny you, Lord. But what happened? As soon as they arrested him, where did they go? They took off. They left him. They deserted him. They failed in their service. That's the next point. So we have the suffering of Jesus, the sorrow of Mary, and then we have the failure in service. Failure in service for the disciples. They had failed to stay with their Lord. But they saw the crucifixion. They saw His head drop. And one of those disciples, uh, Thomas, we all know Thomas, Doubting Thomas, Thomas the Skeptic, I mean, he not only failed in his service, but he continued to second guess. That's the next point. That's the next obstacle that needs to be overcome. So we have failure in service for the disciples, and then we have Thomas's second guessing. He totally couldn't believe it. I mean, he was a very logical, scientific man. I mean, he wasn't a medical physician, he wasn't a coroner, but he knew that Jesus was dead. It didn't take someone to come along and do the liver temp like they do in CSI. He got it. The guy is dead. And then after Jesus had risen from the dead and he appeared to the ten disciples, because remember Judas had gone and hanged himself, Thomas wasn't with the rest of them, so it was the ten of them, and they, they, made, they said, we have seen the Lord, they have seen the Lord. And he said, unless I put my fingers in the nail holes and put my finger in his side, I will never believe. He's just a logical man, he's, he's second guessing the whole thing, but it had to have driven him absolutely crazy to think these other ten guys are saying, he's alive, he's alive. He said, no, unless you have him standing here right before me, I will never believe. So we have to get over our second guessing. Another disciple, though, had to get over something else besides second guessing, and that was Peter. Remember, Peter said that he would die with the Lord. And Jesus told him, he said, before this evening, before the the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And that's exactly what happens. And it says the third time, after he denied him, The gospel records that Jesus looked right in his eyes at that moment in time. Can you imagine the disappointment, the shame that covered him? I mean, Peter was the the loud Peter. I can relate to Peter. He's a loud guy. He's a bold guy. And Peter says, even if everybody else leaves, I will die with you. I mean, he's going to give his life. But who is he denying the Lord in front of? Is it an army? It's to a servant girl, a lowly servant girl. He keeps dissing himself every time because he's he, remember he's just right on the outskirts. He wants to see what happens. But every time somebody comes to him, they said, Hey, surely you were with him. He goes, No, I don't even know that man. They come to him again, surely you know him. And he goes, No, I don't. And he starts to bring down curses upon himself. And they said, Surely you are your accent betrays you. That means you're from the region of Galilee. There apparently was a bit of an accent. You know when people are from Chicago? You guys don't have accents. Da bears. We have accents. But Peter had an accent. And it gave him away. But here he is denying the Lord. And he was filled with shame. He was filled with shame. That was another obstacle that needed to be overcome. Peter's shame. The question is what is it for us? What do we need to overcome to believe? Now, I would venture to say that it could be any one of those things, it could be suffering could be our own suffering. God, why have you done this to me? Why have you allowed this to happen? It could be dealing with our own sorrow. That we have so much pain in our life that we can't see who God is. We start to blame God. Maybe not even sorrow. It could be your own failure in service. Maybe you tried for a while and said, I'm going to follow Christ for a little bit. And then it got hard and you just quit. Maybe that's it. Or maybe, maybe you just 2nd guess. Maybe you have this just real scientific mind. You said, I just, I don't believe it. It doesn't make sense. Well, you know, the, the Scripture is right. It says that, that the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. God can do whatever He wants. And that's how He has ordained salvation to occur. And even Peter himself couldn't deny seeing Jesus standing in front of him. He says, Peter, here's my hand. He can make that challenge. He can meet whatever challenge you lay at His feet. He says, here's my hand. Touch it. Here's my side. Don't disbelieve. Believe. Believe. Or maybe you're just a person that's filled with shame. No one needs to convince you that you're a sinner. You know all too well the sin in your heart. You know everything that you've done. It's all too prevalent in your mind. Every day you face it, you abhor, you hate yourself. Every single time you look in the mirror. And you say that I'm so bad that God couldn't save me. But just as Brian said tonight, he said if God can save me, he can save anybody. God is in the business of saving sinners. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care in whose arms you've been in. I don't care what you've put in your body. I don't care what job you've done. I don't care what family you're a part of. Jesus can save you. He can forgive your sin and transform your life. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. As Brian said, I'm not where I need to be yet. I'm growing. Each one of us are a different place on our journey. I look at salvation a little bit like a light switch. For some, the light is dark and it goes bright. It's on. There's a major transformation that occurs overnight. For those others that are here today, it's gradual like a dimmer switch. The light of who he is starts to dawn on you and gradual changes do occur. But for each one of us, the big obstacle that we need to overcome is our own sin. Because the fact of the matter is, we all like sin. I mean, some of us, we hate it, but there's part of us that just love it. We like to hold on to it. We like to nourish it. But the fact of the matter is, it's stench in the sight of God that He came to pay the price for our sin and free us from our sin. See, that's the main obstacle that we must overcome, our love for sin. Before we can look at ourselves Let's look at those who first came upon the risen tomb and how they reacted. See, when Mary saw the body, she went to go run and tell the disciples in verse 2. Peter took off to the tomb as did John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. They went to check it out. John arrived first but didn't go in, but Peter did. Now we can see that our ability to overcome our disbelief of the resurrection is realized through a startling observation. It's realized through a startling observation. I want us to look at how these people responded. What they observed first of all, Peter observes curiously. He goes in, looks at the garments. See, John stays on the outside, but Peter goes in. He wants to understand. He's curious. What happened? It doesn't make sense. He's not here. I I saw. This is where he was buried. This was the tomb. I saw them lay him down. Where is he? These are his garments. I saw them. I remember them. We were wrapping them in these. He's very curious. He wants to understand. So Peter observes curiously, but John, John doesn't go in. Remember, John beat Peter to the tomb, stands, stops at the door, and he he doesn't go in. We don't understand why he didn't go in. Some think it's because he was a, a pious Jew that if you were to touch a dead body, you would be considered ceremonially unclean, so he doesn't go in. But he is very careful in how he notices Jesus. See, so John observes carefully. Peter observes curiously. John observes very carefully. But Mary, Mary observes completely. She observes completely, and here's what I mean by that. She, she comes out of the tomb, or she looks in the tomb and she turns around, and she sees what she believes to be is the gardener, which we understand is Jesus. In John chapter 20 and verse 14, we read this. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, "Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking?" Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. I mean, she'd already heard that he had risen, but she didn't believe yet. She didn't understand. Jesus said to her, Mary. I can imagine the thought went through her mind as she heard that voice. Because, see, that was the very first voice that she came out of, out of her demonic stupor. That was the very face, the first face that she can really remember after she'd been filled with these demons in her life. And she recognized that voice. Mary. Mary. And, and then she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He's referring to the ascension when he goes back up into heaven after being on earth for 40 days. And then verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and He had said these things to her. So she observes completely. She's the one that is most transformed when she encounters the risen Christ. See, we too have to come to the tomb and see it's empty, that He's no longer dead but is now living. Only in Mary is that answer made complete. In waiting, she meets Jesus Now while the tomb was empty, it wasn't until she saw the risen Christ that she believed. The same with John. The same with Peter. All of the disciples. But now we understand that John has written this book so that we might too read and believe. Because we don't have the luxury of seeing Jesus like they did. He's ascended into heaven. But they've written this testimony to us that we too might believe. That's why John penned his gospel. We might, too, truly believe it. Even as it says at the conclusion of chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. See, they all came into contact with the risen Jesus, and they were transformed. Now, the question is, is what are the results? After we have come to behold the risen Jesus, what, what happens Will it result in us sharing with other people what happens? She goes and tells the disciples. Now this sharing involves three things. And first of all, it involves this. The resurrection of Christ. That's the first thing. Jesus is risen from the dead and He is Lord. You don't have to be afraid any longer that you're going to be under God's wrath because God has taken His wrath upon Himself. And for all who come to Him in repentance and faith, He will by no means cast out. He will forgive your sins. It doesn't matter how lost you were. We heard about two different testimonies today. One of a young girl and one of an older man. And which one has sin in their life? Both of them. I look at it this way. It's like being on, a, on a, like a plane wreck on a deserted island. Try not to think of lost. But think of lost. We're all lost on that island. We can't get off that island. It doesn't matter if you were old. It doesn't matter if you were young. We're all lost. It's only when Christ comes that we are, have the ability to get off the island. He comes with his rescue boat and says, "All oh, come to me. Now, some of us were lost that were young. Some were old. Some of us had a little bit of sin, but other of us had a lot of sin. See, the ones that had a little bit of sin were on the, the beach, but they still couldn't get off the island. And for those that really indulged in sin, you were in the middle of the island in all kinds of dirt and mud and lost in the vines. But still, you couldn't get off the island until Christ came. It doesn't matter how far you have gone. How far you've been away. Jesus Christ who came to save sinners. And this sharing that we have, after we come to know Christ, we are to share the resurrection of Christ. We are to share the spiritual reversal. That's one of the results that come with the resurrection of Christ. Everything has been reversed. Time is turned backwards. Death is no longer the end. It's the last enemy, that is all. But it's been conquered through Jesus Christ. See, you no longer have to to continue to be a slave to sin. If you trust in Christ, He will free you from your sin. The cross was sufficient. He took our sin away. He he satisfied the wrath of God. We call this propitiation and then expiation. Two big words. Propitiation means that He satisfied God's holy wrath. And then expiation means that He took that wrath away, our sin away from us. That now in the sight of God, God no longer sees a sinner, but He sees Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how what you have done. It doesn't matter what you have, what consequences of your sin. Now you may be suffering. He can save you. And he's still in the business of saving lives. But if you reject that salvation, and I have to be very clear that it's like rejecting the fire in your building. That you are going to suffer the consequence of that rejection. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will also reap. He is a holy God. That you do not try to make light of him. That he is your cosmic friend. That he is the holy, sovereign creator of the universe. He is the Lord of all. And the gospel is very clear. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Willingly or unwillingly. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We all will bow, but some will do so disresistently, and others will be doing so joyously. I plead with you to do so joyously. And you have to lay down your arms, because the Scripture is very clear that we were once enemies, God's enemies. But while we were still yet enemies, Christ died for us to lay the weapon down. He took the wrath that you deserved upon Himself on Calvary Street for you. Don't Try to ignore His voice. You can try it for a while, but that fire is going to catch up. The clock keeps ticking. The wages of sin is death. You can try to ignore God. You can try to shake your fist at God, but when the wrinkles come, when, the, when, the, when you hear the health reports, your body, it's just showing that you have sin in your life. That we're all going to die. For those that are young and you think, hey, I don't need it right now. I want to have fun. You're going to suffer the consequence of your actions. The scripture is very clear. There is no peace for the wicked. You might have fun for a while, but you are going to reap that sin. Just as farmers are going out into the fields right now to plant, they're casting their seeds, and it's going to go in the ground, and you're going to find out in the next few months as it starts to grow. Is that soybeans? Is that weed? Is that corn? It's going to grow, but the more you continue to sin, you're casting seed. And you're going we- to reap. That time passes, it's going to continue to grow. And then one day, you're going to be amazed, and, and you're going to stand in the presence of God, And he's going to look at the sin in your life. And then you are going to go off to hell. Hell is a real place. And that's where Satan's going to go. He's not going to be in charge there. We get this erroneous, far side assumption that Satan is in charge of hell. Nobody is. It was created to house him where he will be punished forever and ever. Even the devil is God's devil. So we have the resurrection of Christ, our spiritual ver- reversal, and now we have a new relationship. We're no longer God's enemies. We are considered God's children. To those, as Brian was quoting from John chapter 1, verse 12, to those who believed in His name, God gave the right to become children of God. Amen. Some of you here, you know what it's like. You, have, you, have, you are an illicit child. You know what I'm saying? An unlawful union. You're not married. Your parents weren't married. You might have your own child that way. See, you know what God does is he doesn't matter where you've been and what you've done and, and what, how you came to be, but he says, I'm going to make you my child. I'm going to bring you into my family, and I'm going to adopt you as my own. And I'm going to give you all the privileges of being my child. And that means everyone here needs that. Everyone here needs that transformation. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. Some here are self-righteous, and they're the ones that are going to have to stand in judgment of God. I mean, stand at the judgment seat of God. And they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we not do all these things in your name? And he says, I never knew you. See, there are those who who think that by all their great deeds they're going to get to heaven. You can't get to heaven on your own. Just think, if we were to go down to Lake Michigan and go go down to Navy Pier, and I were to take a running start and jump, am I going to make it across Lake Michigan? No. Not even close. Now, if Michael Jordan went and did that, would he make it across Lake Michigan? No, but he'd make it a lot farther than I would. But the point is, is that us trying to get to God is like trying to jump across Lake Michigan. Someone might be a little bit better than the other, but we're still so far to go, we can't make it. It's only through Jesus Christ, because Jesus made that jump. He made that jump by his cross. He was the only one who could... Was, that was perfect, that could pay the price for our sins to give us this new relationship. See, that's what that empty tomb means. That's the day that changes everything. And this could be your salvation day where the resurrection will apply to your life. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And if you want to invite Jesus into your life, you say, I want that new hope. I want to be forgiven of my sins. I no longer want to be in the wrath of God. You don't think about anything you have to change because God will help you. He will. He will guide you. He will guard you. It's not about wearing a certain dress. It's not about talking a certain way. It's none of those things. It's about having a relationship with Almighty God. That God has given His Son for you to die on the cross for you that you might be forgiven. And the Scripture is very clear. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And the Scripture is very clear that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can be saved today. And you just need to pray with me. You call out to the Lord and you say, God, I'm a sinner. Save me. And it's as simple as that. But right now, I'd like us to pray. And if you are a person who you know you need salvation, then I'm going to ask you to just bow your head and pray in the depth of your heart to invite Jesus into your life. And just pray these words with me. And if you have been a person who has backslidden, you know that I'm going to ask you to pray along with me that God would you would re- repent of your sins and that He would forgive you and transform you and help you to be following Him in the way that He so desires. So pray with me, Father. I am a sinner. I know that I have sinned against You, and that You died on the cross for my sin. Lord, You know all my sins. Lord, I come before You now? confessing my sin, proclaiming the the promise that if we confess our sins, You are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. I confess them before You now. I repent of them. I turn from them. And I ask You to save me. And I thank You for doing it. In Jesus' name, Amen.